Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we have journalist Julia Steers back on the show. Julia is the Nairobi Bureau Chief for Vice News and has been based in East Africa for nearly a decade. Since we last had her on, she's been investigating the Russian paramilitary organization, the Wagner Group, in Africa, the Middle East, as well as Ukraine. And in today's show, we attempt to sort through the many claims about Wagner's activities and future in Africa. Julia, thanks for coming back on our podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about something that's a bit of a hot topic these days, which is a Wagner and Wagner in Africa uh, specifically. So first of all, how did Wagner start and when did it first start showing up in Africa? So Wagner first originated back in 2014 to back Ukrainian separatists. It was called Wagner after a guy named Dmitry Utkin, one of the founders whose call signal was Wagner after the composer. So that was sort of the early version of it. But as far as this iteration that we're seeing in Africa sort of deploying abroad to represent the interests of Russia and its allies, I think we really first started to see that form of the Wagner Group in Syria, where they went to ostensibly protect Russian oil assets and then to fight ISIS on behalf of the regime. And that's where, at least as far as our reporting is concerned, you start to see this model that's now being employed across Africa. Uh, We saw them in Syria in late 2015, in Libya in 2019. And they first showed up in Central African Republic, sort of under the auspices of this 2017 Security Council deal, which allowed Russian arms and so-called military instructors into the country to train CAR's National Army when they were facing many, many rebel movements. At the time, they were called Russian instructors, but they quickly morphed into what we know as Wagner today and and the group that we now see in Central African Republic, in Mali, in Mozambique, in Sudan, and still in Libya as well. Why do governments invite Wagner in? What, What does it have to offer? So to the extent that there is sort of a template and a specific, you know, one or two reasons why governments invite Wagner in. Uh, I think CAR provides a good example of that, because obviously in the early years we saw them deployed in all sorts of different ways, and they've sort of refined this set of services that they're selling. And, And briefly, they're providing weapons and security services and personnel in exchange for minerals and resources. That's often because they're both targeting countries that, of course, are extremely rich in minerals and resources, but also because these governments don't have the cash to pay them. So the governments who work with Wagner are typically in fairly desperate straits. They're facing insurgencies, terrorist movements, rebel movements, uh, in the case of Sudan, a popular revolution. But I think, you know, the one thing that is consistent throughout all of the governments who, as you said, invite Wagner in is that they're uh, facing very difficult odds and they feel they've been let down by other foreign partners. Mm. We can talk about these other foreign partners in a bit, which uh, presumably in many of these cases mean mean France and to a degree Washington. But mercenaries on the African continent are not exactly new. So how did Wagner find a find a particular niche that made their services, you know, especially valuable to some of these governments, or at least seemed especially valuable to some of these governments? So I think, first of all, that's an important thing to note what you said, that PMCs have worked on the continent for decades. Obviously, Wagner itself was specifically modeled after this South African PMC called Executive Outcomes. 
in our own reporting on the ground, we've observed quite a bit of hypocrisy when it comes to Western governments trying to dissuade other governments from working with Wagner when, you know, there are parts of these sort of legitimate services that they sell, protecting oil fields, providing a presidential guard to the president, training troops that are, in fact, the same sort of security services that are offered by other PMCs. In terms of what makes Wagner distinct, they are, of course, distinct in their direct ties to the Kremlin. So that's not necessarily something that we see from other PMCs in terms of actually trying to advance Russian foreign policy agenda and the sort of soft power play that we really observed in CAR specifically. And of course, they're distinct in their approach on the battlefield and their level of brutality, which unfortunately is quite effective. So that's an intentional and strategic thing. When you go into a village in Central African Republic or Mali and you massacre people with a particularly sort of brutal display of violence, when you take people onto bases and you torture them, that unfortunately is very effective in controlling the population and instilling fear in the population. And what we've seen on the ground is that actually is effective in sort of stemming the tide of violence in some instances, specifically in Central African Republic. So in Central African Republic, they can offer the government, you know, that has had a UN peacekeeping mission there for decades, that's had French troops there, EU troops there, you know, all sorts of training missions to try and get their military into shape to be able to combat the many rebel groups that threaten security across the country. And the reality is that Wagner comes in, and and by the way, this is their marketing pitch. It also happens to have some elements of truth in it. Wagner comes in with anywhere from 800 to 2,000 guys, and within two years on the ground has proven in some ways to be more effective, at least in limiting the violence from rebels than, than these other foreign entities that have been there trying to do the same. So I think... That's a long-winded way of answering your question about what makes them distinct. I I think that the governments there see results more quickly. And the Central African president told us that, you know, when he was facing a particularly fierce rebel coalition that was threatening the capital in 2021, he asked internationally, he said he asked at the UN for friends and for friends that would come with real weapons that would enable them to actually fight back against the rebels. And he felt that nobody arrived um, and and rose to that call except for the Russians. I'm curious by the fact you say that it is effective in some ways, because it does seem like there's a bit of a debate about whether or not Wagner's tactics, especially on the on the battlefield, are effective as counterinsurgency, or, or whether or not as sort of by often using these very brutal tactics, it just kicks the can down the road and and, and causes bigger problems. What, what has sort of your reporting uh, shown on that? So I think there's a lot of different answers to that question, including, you know, in the short term versus the long term. As you said, kicking the can down the road is a big concern. Wagner was certainly instrumental in 2021 in preventing the fall of the capital Bangui to the rebels in Central African Republic. I think that's um, very that was very clear. However, in the long term, the fact that they, you know, now basically control all of that country's mining interests, mining output, they even control their customs services, you know, will that ultimately benefit Central African Republic? And, you know, in the long, are they going to stay there for as long as it takes to, to 
to eradicate all of these rebel groups. That seems very, very unlikely. But in the short term, have they terrified people enough to to lessen rebel activity and and people includes both civilians and rebels in this case you know so you know in the short term they have been effective in that very sort of small slice of what the central african president might consider to be effective and keep in mind part of that is that he's still in power and that's part of their job is to prop up the leaders of these countries in Mali, I think they're facing a different situation where uh, they have seen so far that despite their attacks in several villages and, and very significant massacres there where they've ramped up more quickly than elsewhere, uh, they haven't really seen um, a decrease in insurgent activity. And of course, it's already made its way into the propaganda of these terrorist groups, you know, the fact that now they're fighting this entity known as Wagner. So as I said, I think the model that they've employed in the Central African Republic has been successful in their eyes, in the eyes of the president of Central African Republic. And they're trying to now bring that elsewhere. And I, I think they will find that, that it doesn't necessarily apply elsewhere. So of course, you know, it depends who you're asking when when you answer the question whether or not they're effective. But I think everybody kind of reporting on them and observing these situations can agree that in the long term, these countries will not benefit from from Wagner's presence there. And, you, and you've talked about Wagner in Car in, in Mali. In Sudan, I would say they look perhaps a bit different as they're less directly connected to the state itself than to a prominent state actor, uh, or at least that's generally how it's perceived in the form of General Hameti, who is, of course, the, the deputy on the Sovereign Council, but also operates a bit on his own as well. So c- can you tell us how, how does Wagner's activities in Sudan sort of relate to uh, what it's trying to do elsewhere in the continent? Certainly. So I I think that Sudan is a different model. It's one we're actively reporting out at the moment. And it's one, you know, as as they are everywhere that that is constantly shifting. So it's not sort of the cookie cutter model of going in, propping up a beleaguered leader and trying to fight whether it's a rebel group or a terrorist group. As you said, their financial interests are more at the forefront in Sudan, so gold mining there and being affiliated with certain leaders like Kameti who are involved in gold mining. And so, so far what we've seen aside from, you know, a a small scale effort to to prop up elements of the military when it comes to this popular uprising there is mostly their involvement in the mining industry. And they've been very sort of nimble in, as it's come out, that they are, you know, deeply embedded in the mining industry there. They have been able to sort of rework some of their company structures, put put things in Sudanese names and that sort of thing to, again, continue to both evade sanctions and to take gold out of that country. So, you know, Sudan is definitely one that we're watching to see how they grow their presence there, both because, as you said, they're attached to this leader whose, you know, future is uncertain as well. Um, And because they're more focused on their financial gains there, they don't really have a big military apparatus there. So we've talked about what, you know, governments want out of Wagner, but I guess, what does Wagner want from Wagner's activities in Africa? It sounds like that question differs from place to place, and also gets us to the question of, you know, how should we see Wagner in relation to the Kremlin, to Moscow, and and its own objectives on the continent? 
So in our reporting, which is, you know, sort of a big picture view of Wagner's activities around the world, we look at what they're gaining from the situation in a three-pronged way. So their military gains, they're selling guns, the services of their personnel, um, their financial gains, which are the biggest of them all. They're only working in countries with vast mineral resources, with the exception of Ukraine. Uh, and then, of course, soft power ties to Russian foreign policy. Those are developing still, obviously, but are general generally in line with Putin's vision of sort of restoring Russia to a certain place on the world stage, restoring this sort of Soviet era influence around the world. Uh, financially, you know, Africa is becoming more and more important for them in terms of avoiding sanctions and increasing revenue streams um, as they may be impacted by sanctions related to Ukraine elsewhere. Um, and I think it's important also that just as Wagner is sort of constantly reinventing itself in the countries where they work, uh, they're also able to, you know, adapt and be nimble. And uh, that's that also applies when it comes to specific elements of the Kremlin's agenda. So, you know, we're noticing that they're doing different things in Africa as the war in Ukraine drags on. And there's certainly an uptick in their soft power plays across the continent. So that is is what we look at when we're trying to figure out how it's tied to Russian foreign policy and the messages that they want to send about Russia abroad. And can you focus a bit on Wagner's efforts on social media, the information wars, the propaganda that we've seen on the continent. So in addition to the sort of hard weapons, some of these other tactics, both in the service of governments, perhaps, but also against the Kremlin's Western Western foes, uh, France and, and Washington specifically. So I think the soft power thing we look at in a few different ways. You know, we, we thought it was very bizarre to be sitting in Russian language classes in the middle of Bangui that were sponsored by, you know, one of the leaders of Wagner who is working at the Russian embassy there. On the social media front, that's again two-pronged. There's a lot of propaganda that Wagner is putting out about itself and sort of how they want to project their images. This is an extension of all these films that they've made about themselves, you know, depicting Wagner fighters as these sort of fearsome warriors who are protecting African villagers. That, you know, is a pretty obvious propaganda play. The other thing that is more sinister and you know, I think touches, goes back to the experience that Wagner's backer, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has uh, in terms of his influencing elections elsewhere in the world, is that we're seeing uh, a lot of social media campaigns and propping up of certain African influencers who have the exact same um, sort of pitch as Wagner has, which is, uh, again, based on very real grievances, particularly in Francophone Africa, that the colonialist powers are, you know, have had their time, they've messed up enough in the region, and that it's time that Africa starts to look for new partners that empower them. And and we've seen these messages really strongly across social media, in local media, in countries where there's a Wagner presence, but also in countries where there is not yet, like Burkina Faso, like Democratic Republic of Congo, Cote d'Ivoire. So you're seeing all very, very similar narratives across these countries. And then often on the ground, you're seeing signs that echo these social media sentiments at protests. So, you know, signs that say, long live Russia, um, signs that say Putin is a better partner than, than the French powers. And I think it's extremely effective because while I believe it's in part backed, you know, by very specific Russian influence campaigns, it's tapping into 
these very genuine grievances and real fatigue of French powers, former colonialist powers, UN missions, all of which in many of these countries are perceived to be pretty ineffective. So, so one of the questions that I hear coming up a fair amount now from diplomats um, is if, you know, if you look at a map and you see generally the spread of Wagner, as well as places where people fear they might be talking to the governments or, or interested in entering, you know, you can start to connect dots and see that it would have a presence across much of the Sahel, across much of Central Africa. Have you heard much or seen much in your reporting that would suggest that Wagner could start to have something that looks more like a regional power play, something that looks more cross-border? We've already seen some hints of that between Sudan and, and Carr, but I'm, I'm wondering if, you're, if that's something that, that crops up in your reporting as a legitimate concern. So I would certainly say it's a legitimate concern. There are some things that we are still reporting out that I can't say too much about. But as I said, you know, their soft power play, you start to see signs of that in countries where there is no Wagner mission at all. We're looking specifically at Burkina Faso and Cote d'Ivoire, which are, of course, you know, neighbors of Mali the DRC as well. So yes, I think it's a very legitimate concern. Uh, You know, I know a lot of Western governments are concerned about a possible spread of both Wagner's message and, and mission across the region. And I would say that we're starting to see that bubble up as well, including in terms of moving personnel. You know, we saw um, fighters from Cote d'Ivoire in Ukraine in videos with Yevgeny Prigozhin. So, you know, I think, of course, you have to consider the fact that they've set their sights on a much bigger uh, territory than the countries that they're already operating in in Africa. The U.S. has been leaking intelligence, uh, alleging Wagner could be attempting regime change in Chad. How, how do you assess those claims? Does, does that seem plausible? Well, we look at that as the U.S. trying different, certainly more collaborative approaches instead of simply chastising governments. And that's obviously an evolution from other approaches. In the Chad case, you saw the U.S. sharing critical intel with the regime and then, of course, also making sure that it's leaked that they've done so. They also recently unveiled an aid package for the Sahel. I believe they've upped the amount of visits of U.S. officials to the region. So that's all significant. In terms of the coup plot, it does seem plausible that Wagner would be interested in fostering regime change in several countries, not just Chad. Now, something we haven't touched on much, but you mentioned at the beginning that Wagner started in Ukraine back in 2014 and then spread Syria to Africa. But obviously, a lot of the focus on it now is related to its role in the current Ukraine conflict. You've been on the ground uh, looking at Wagner in Ukraine as well. Um, how should we think about Wagner in Ukraine as it relates to to Wagner in Africa and Wagner as a whole? Is it, is it, it should we see it as a cohesive group? I would not see it as a cohesive group in terms of what they're doing in Ukraine and what they're doing in Africa. We recently spent a month in Ukraine. Um, and it was at the time where Wagner sort of came out of the shadows. So I think there are a lot of things that we can learn in terms of their messaging about how they want us to think about them. You know, Yevgeny Prigozhin admitted uh, just recently that he, in fact, is the head of Wagner. They've really ramped up their propaganda around what they're doing in Ukraine. They've ramped up their recruitment drives for both Ukraine and the missions in Africa. And so all of that is related to this sort of coming out of the shadows that they've done around 
around their work in eastern Ukraine. However, for us, in terms of reporting out what they're doing in Africa and Syria and Libya and trying to draw parallels between those, Ukraine has been um, a bit of a distraction, I would say, because they're their work there is so different. And I'm talking mainly about this mass recruitment of prisoners there. So suddenly we started seeing numbers like 40,000 Wagner fighters in Ukraine. And previously we knew, you know, this is a group of a couple thousand from, let's say, five to, to 15,000 were the previous estimates. And then we saw it massively ballooning because they were going to Russian prisons and recruiting prisoners. And this was very specific to their efforts in Ukraine, in Bakhmut specifically, to just sort of throw a lot of prisoners at the front line there, um, and they needed bodies and and cannon fodder, frankly. That's very different than what we're seeing in Africa, which is more strategic, you know, has the financial element, has the soft power element. I think the one similarity, of course, is that this is a group that is capable of constant transformation. This is a group that is majorly ramping up their sort of propaganda machine, as we've seen around their efforts in Ukraine. And this is a group that ultimately we should look at as an arm of the Kremlin, whether legitimate or not. And of course, Ukraine is the best example of that. They're fulfilling a very specific um, sort of demand uh, that is part of Putin's agenda. And it's the closest we've seen to them sort of uh, coming under the Russian MOD in a way. So we haven't seen that in Africa, really. They've operated as more of a, you know, a private PMC. Whether or not that will have an impact in Africa and around the world, that they're more sort of, even though they're at odds with them, enmeshed with the MOD, um, we've yet to see. But we haven't actually seen a big change in what they're doing in Africa in this first year of war in Ukraine. At the beginning, a lot of analysts were saying, oh, they're going to draw down their missions in Africa or they're going to take all their top guys to Ukraine. And, you know, we've seen some strange things like African fighters in Ukraine, this unit that at least on uh, Wagner telegram channels that they're calling Black Wagner or Black Russians fighting in Ukraine. That's a fairly small number. We haven't seen, um, you know, big drawdowns of the missions in Africa. I mean, it's a bit surprising surprising, one would think that Wagner has got sucked in so centrally at the moment in this Ukraine war, and yet it isn't affecting kind of their their broader global ambitions. How how do you think they've managed to to pull that off? This, This prison recruitment, you know, they've managed to balloon their ranks by tens of thousands of fighters in a matter of months because they're rounding up men from uh, Russian prisons. You know, there could be some slight changes in leadership. There could be some changes to, you know, guys with sort of special ops backgrounds that they need in Ukraine. Um, But we, we haven't seen sort of big changes in how they're operating in Africa as a result. Um, You know, they may, they may sort of see this, you know, quote, success that they've had in recruiting people for Ukraine as a real opportunity to grow the missions in Africa. And I think, you know, we've talked to men who have recently been recruited and they have said that in the language of these recruitment campaigns, the pitch aside from, you know, you can do something great for your country in Ukraine is then you can go to Africa and, you know, have a big adventure. So just on that, who who exactly is it that Wagner manages to recruit to come to Africa? And why is it attractive to them? When we spent a month on the ground with Wagner and Carr, we met all sorts 
of people who had joined the group. We certainly met the stereotypical kind of villain who seemed desensitized and very capable of committing war crimes. But we also met guys who were, for example, obsessed with American pop culture and who had clearly signed up for an adventure in Africa or to help fight ISIS in Syria and ended up in CAR. On a leadership level, it's a lot of ex-special forces, ex-GRU, and then, of course, as you go down through the ranks, that level of specialization seems to decrease, but you can assume that they're still recruiting across the board. Pergosian's recruitment strategy for Africa, at least based on the social media campaigns that we've been following, now seems to be more oriented towards young people looking for that adventure or tough enough for a long, hot deployment. You know, in some of the recruitment materials, they joke about getting malaria, but being able to tough it out. Um, so, you know, we, we can extrapolate that they're looking for sort of less experienced folks who are up for an adventure versus some of those special operative types that we've seen in the past. We are in touch with a few sources who are more along the highly trained level or who served in the Russian military. They have actually been almost forcibly recruited to join the fight in Ukraine, possibly to command those thousands of unskilled prison recruits that they're recruiting for Ukraine. So I think the recruitment efforts probably cut across the board here. So the current war in Ukraine has changed how openly Wagner presents itself clearly, um, both in terms of who its leadership is and its official ties to the Russian state. Will that have any knock-on effects on Wagner's operations in Africa, do you think? Well, I think one of the things that they will lose that was previously very important to how they operated in Africa was this level of plausible deniability, right? So Evgeny Prigozhin denied he was associated with the group. You know, we embedded with Wagner leadership in Central African Republic last year, and even then they wouldn't admit that they were Wagner or who exactly they were working for. So part of the game then was to keep things intentionally deceptive and shadowy and distance themselves from the Kremlin and distance themselves from Prigozhin, who was himself distancing from the Kremlin. So now we have a whole new era, really, where Prigozhin has said he is the head of a group called Wagner. He obviously has very close links to the Kremlin to be able to pull off what he has done in Ukraine. And and we have not yet really seen how that will impact Africa, if it will at all. Um, I, I do think as it becomes clear that more and more money can be made from the resource extraction that they're doing here, uh, that that could complicate things for them now that they're, you know, sort of out of the shadows. But I think we also have to be careful about really considering them out of the shadows because, of course, they still keep their operations and their financial arrangements and their shell companies extremely murky and shadowy. And it is, again, just all part of their sort of propaganda game to be, you know, operating you know, out in the open. Hmm. Now, there's a huge amount of focus at the moment, I would say, among um, Western policymakers um, in Europe, in the US, about how to counter Wagner in Africa. Why do you think exactly there is this big focus on Wagner? I suppose it, you know, in some ways it's obvious, but then there also seems to be this disconnect between what's obviously a sort of great power struggle that's taking place versus often the stated reason for focusing on Wagner, which has to do with transnational crime and rights abuses. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yes, definitely. I have been reporting on Wagner in Africa since they 
arrived in Central African Republic. And there was not a lot of hand-wringing about them until, uh, you know, they started to really have more power in the region and this sort of geopolitical struggle started to develop and and it really really increased with Ukraine. Ukraine majorly ramped up the extent to which western governments sort of said, "Hey, wait a minute, they're also in Africa." And so, you know, of course it's couched in concern about human rights as you said. Um, but it it is of course part of this power struggle and I think uh, you know, I've been asked this question a lot uh, in our last year and a half of reporting on them, uh, and I'm happy that I don't have to answer, you know, what the solution is to sort of dissuade governments uh, from working with Wagner and and push them towards, you know, Western governments. But I do think there's a real risk of further alienating governments if Western countries take this approach of saying, okay, now you're working with the terrorist group, you get no money or aid or cooperation from us. Largely because, as I said before, it feeds into this narrative, an extremely effective one, that Western governments have this neocolonialist condescending approach versus a collaborative approach. That's the message that Wagner is selling. Uh, And then presumably, you know, they would just deepen ties with Wagner. Um, And and that would obviously hugely benefit the Russians there. You know, in Mali, for example, um, a lot of those mines are still owned by Western companies, by, you know, British and Canadian and American companies. If a terrorist list made it untenable for those companies to stay there, um, and, you know, that's one of the, the things that Western governments are talking about, then that would be huge financial gains for Wagner. So I'm not sure what the answer is, but I certainly think, uh, you know, the U.S. and European governments are, are quite concerned about, you know, Russian influence growing in the region, and then secondarily, of course, concerned about human rights. Mm. And can you just talk in a bit more detail there about how exactly you've seen Western governments go about countering Wagner, trying to dissuade African governments from working with them? Uh, As you mentioned, there's started to be sanctioning. There's talk of putting Wagner on basically a terrorist designation. Um, And it's not surprising we often see a sort of rush to sanctions, I would say, as a primary Western policy tool these days. Um, But so, so what have you seen thus far? So we've seen sanctioning. We've seen Wagner leaders sanctioned. The individuals that we were dealing with in Central African Republic were both sanctioned by the U.S. and the EU. It, it really has no bearing on their ability to operate here. So um, the sanctions have been fairly ineffective. And now, as you said, the big conversation is whether or not uh, the U.K. and U.S. designate Wagner as a terrorist group and what impact that would have. Um, you know, it's the rhetoric as well that we've seen, particularly from AFRICOM uh, in some of their sort of regional trainings and conferences, has been very sort of, um, you know, sternly warning African governments from deepening their ties with the Russians and with the Wagner group, explaining how bad Wagner is. And, and this is to countries who are working with with Wagner now, but also, you know, we saw AFRICOM telling the government of Burkina Faso this and that sort of thing. So as I said, I think they run the risk of walking right into what the Russians are already saying about them, which is they will come here to sort of chastise you and and slap you on the wrist, but they will not come here with the practical solutions that we come with. And so it, it does seem like it's time for a more creative approach if the interest of these governments is is to actually engage with African governments about how they could um, solve some of the problems that they're looking to Wagner to solve. 
about the terrorist designation, we have concerns that making Wagner, declaring Wagner a terrorist group could complicate Western diplomacy in places that have turned to Wagner for help and also complicate humanitarian efforts there. In the conversations you're having, what would designating Wagner as a terrorist organization seek to accomplish? What are the potential drawbacks? This is a question that as a journalist, I'm happy not to have to answer it. But I can say that it's one that's clearly weighing heavily on the minds of policymakers in Europe and the UK and the US based on the conversations that we've had recently. I think it feeds into the narrative that Wagner is trying to sell if they are listed as a terrorist group, which is that the US and Europe are pretty heavy-handed in their efforts to control these countries. And I think the concern would be that it might not achieve the aim of making Wagner untouchable, particularly in Africa. And so then the question is, then what? And if Western governments wanted to take a more strategic approach, if you will, and really look at why governments are inviting Wagner in, where would you suggest they focus without, you know, offering brutal counterinsurgency campaigns of their own? I do think we can consider, you know, what African leaders have told us in our reporting would be helpful to them. So, you know, there is the perception that UN missions, EU missions come in, spend a lot of money on setting up their, you know, sort of housing facilities for their troops, and then their people aren't really actually meaningfully engaging with the military, for example. So in Mali and Car, it's the militaries that need training. And leadership in those countries have told us things like, you know, when the EU comes to train us, they train us with wooden guns instead of real guns. And as you said, this is not to say that, you know, French troops have to be waging brutal counterinsurgencies and committing human rights abuses in these countries in order to sort of offer something on par with what with what Wagner is offering. Um, but I think if you're listening to what these leaders are saying, uh, it's that they want sort of smaller and scrappier partners who will give them real skills to to fight back against whether it's terrorists or or rebel groups. And to the degree you're able to judge, do you think that's what the people of these countries want as well? Is there, is there some alignment with their governments in welcoming Wagner in their country? So that's a really interesting question, and I think it points to some of the success that these influence campaigns have had over the last few years since I first started reporting on it. When they first started committing really grave abuses, you know, the population was absolutely against them. They wanted the Russians out. And as they ramped up their abuses in, in later years... I was interested to hear when we were there last year and the year before, so 2021, 2022, that a lot of the population said, yeah, well, they're bad uh, and, you know, we, we don't like the torture, but they're actually doing something. So that was a real turn that we witnessed on the ground. We're, you know, watching places like Mali where their presence is just over a year old uh, to see if there's that same sort of turn where in the first year or two, people are quite horrified by really gruesome violence, torture, extrajudicial killings, really predatory behavior towards civilians to saying, you know, it's better, it's better than it was before. And again, this is in very specific cases and specific villages where perhaps they've seen a decrease in rebel activity. And then it is also combined with this real soft power play influence campaigns that we've been seeing more recently in the last two years, I would say. But certainly there is a turn in the population in some countries to say, look, Wagner, Russia is not a perfect partner. 
they've done some bad things, but they are a meaningful partner. They have had some impact on the ground. And oh, by the way, look, they're also doing things like giving us Russian language classes and making nice statues in Bangui. So a long-winded way of saying, yes, I do think the population itself is perhaps changing their views on Russia and Wagner. And, and that's a very interesting turn that we've noticed more recently. And that's in spite of these abuses that they're continuing to commit. Mm-hmm. And just a final question to follow up on that. Have you seen Wagner's presence change the political systems in some of these countries, perhaps closed to them, made it more difficult for civil society and, and, and press to engage in, in, in a more open society? Certainly, yes. I think the best example of that is Central African Republic, where they've changed processes. You know, the head of the Wagner mission there, or as they would say, the Russian instructor mission there, uh, sits just next to the president in the presidential palace in the capital there. So they're working extremely closely. When we interviewed the president, he was sitting, you know, just over his shoulder monitoring everything he was saying, essentially. So they're working extremely closely on the political spectrum. They are working on the civil society level. They fund uh, newspapers, radio stations. Uh, They, in some cases, have lobbied for certain laws in parliament. They back certain... Uh, parliamentarians. So again, I've said previously that I think Carr is really the model that in their ideal world, they would export to other countries. And I believe that's because they've been able to become so entrenched across the board, militarily, financially, and then in this new realm of the political and civil society space. Uh, And that's also allowed them, you know, you asked about journalists, they have introduced new um, accreditation processes for for journalists in the Central African Republic, and we've seen it become much harder for journalists to work there. So absolutely, I think that's another sort of realm to watch if you look at what they've done in their most successful mission uh, in their eyes, which is CAR, you can assume that they would be trying to export that elsewhere. Um, And of course, in Sudan, you see them quite close to politicians as well. So they're, of course, looking to have influence in that space. Okay, thanks, Julia. That was a a really fascinating uh, discussion and and obviously a topic I think we're going to have to uh, come back to, I'm sure, on the podcast as well. So, So thanks for coming back. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell and the Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. In the show notes, we'll post a link to some of Crisis Group's own reporting on Russia and Wagner in Africa. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.